As was already mentioned, we certainly are thankful and certainly very pleased that we each have been granted the lovely opportunity to assemble today as we are. The first day of the week is always such a special time in that it draws us to a reminder of truly the things most important in this life. Our sojourn here is so brief, and yet we look by way of preparation for a better land than this one, a greater city mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Certainly good that this group is here this morning, and we're honored that we can worship even as we are. The songs that we've already sung today, Brother Cale just most recently led us in to God be the glory. And in many ways, you might notice that two of the statements found in that song are praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Interestingly, that'll have a bearing on some of the features of our lesson this morning. The worship of the church. You know, we've reached that particular time where we will give appreciation to this particular set of lessons on the fundamentals. Trying each month to, in fact, devote one of our lessons to some of the fundamentals of the faith. So far this year, we've already reflected on some amazing aspects of the fundamentals of our faith. Things like God God exists, the Lord Jesus Christ came, the Bible is the Word of God. The appreciation about the nature of the church is the one we did last month. Today, we come to one of the attributes of the church, one of its works which so meaningful, so powerful. What is the worship of the church? What role does it play in the understanding that goes with the correctness of the teaching of the New Testament? What is it you and I are doing at this moment on this Sunday morning? As we each are well aware, many choose not to worship. Think about the number of folks who live within a half a mile of this building who are not going anywhere. They're doing something else today. Maybe planning to go to the lake. Maybe mowing the yard. Maybe watching television or some other activity. The fact is, the worship of the church is something God allows us to choose or to choose not to do. Why is it so significant today? Let's devote the next few moments to reflecting upon the nature of that, as you'll notice about, that, about the middle of that slide. One of the things about the worship is this. If you were to just take a random sampling, ask a thousand people, is when you hear the word church, what do you first think of? Probably one frequently mentioned matter is assembly for worship. What does that mean and what's involved in it? This next slide will begin in appreciation. That is a reminder more than anything else. An issue that touches the critical feature of what worship is and what worship is not. Probably the statement that will come as no surprise or shock to you at all is that there is a great deal of misunderstanding in the religious world about the nature of worship. What's its purpose? Who is it for? What role does it play? The Bible isn't silent about this, but men have so often issued their thinking and their speculations on this subject, and so worship, as it's most often regarded, bears little resemblance to what one reads in the New Testament. So let's take this opening slide, which is in some ways introductory, and this merely think about, in a general way, when the Bible presents to us that word worship, What was the original word that was there? What did it mean? 
And so on this slide, could I invite you to note this? The word worship occurs 198 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Now that alone, if the word was only there once, that would have been enough. But the fact that it's there that often reminds us that as individuals throughout the ages have involved themselves in worship to God, it is something the Holy Spirit recorded, it is something that He described, and it's something that was there for our learning. No wonder would that say it. Let's talk about the Old Testament first. It's true, the Old Testament, as it gives us glimpses of Old Testament worship, we readily find in it the occurrence of this Word. I've put it on the slide for your consideration. I make no claim to pronouncing that correctly as it's transliterated into English, but shakah is the word that appears in the Hebrew rendering. As Abraham shakahed, and as various others like Hezekiah did it in the Old Testament. Well, what were they doing and what did the word signify? The definition of that word is this, to prostrate before, to make obeisance to, to do reverence to. It's easy to see then that as one involved him or herself in this, it was a recognition of one who is greater that one was doing obeisance or reverence to. It does sound quite a bit like what you and I consider in the matter related to worship. But what about the New Testament? You and I realize we live beneath that code of laws today. And in the New Testament era, proskuneo is the Greek word that appears so often translated worship for us in the New Testament. Its meaning, also on the slide, and you'll notice a strong correspondence to that Old Testament one. To kiss the hand toward, to do reverence to. And so as Peter or Paul or John or some of the other New Testament individuals, as they proskuneoed, they were literally doing reverence to one whom they perceived as greater than they, and furthermore, literally kissing the hand of obeisance to. As you keep those ideas in mind, I suppose we can now define it for our purposes in light of our appreciation today. The very first time the word worship occurs in the New Testament, the first time, is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, second chapter of the New Testament. And in that presentation, you and I recall that it was, oddly enough, Herod who was making a statement. You realize he had desires, of course, to remain the king and wasn't interested in encouraging this baby whom he had heard that was born king of the Jews. You might recall what he said. You go and find and bring me word again so that I can, in fact, offer my worship. That word at that time, and for your consideration in mind today, continues to then highlight this. Acts of reverence directed to God. Now, you and I have often noted the significance that goes with that description. Acts, A-C-T-S, of reverence directed to God. May I suggest we ought never to allow the thinking of the meaning of that word to fall too far from our appreciation. For that reason, I have put together a listing of some things based on that definition that worship is and certain things that it's not. And we'll use various passages in the Bible to point us to what they are. Let's begin it like this. Acts of reverence. Acts 
Worship involves acts. That's one of the first great misunderstandings that seemingly has clouded the way in which worship is often perceived. Many of our day think that worship is nothing but some emotional reaction. They think that worship is nothing but a sense of emotional response to a circumstance. That is not it. Worship consists of acts. Authorized, prescripted acts in which one may choose to be involved or which one may choose not to be involved. So on that top of that slide, has the Bible revealed certain things that are to be done as a part of authorized worship? I hope before we close the lesson we'll know that answer is yes. You and I cannot do whatever we want and call it worship. Nor can we merely involve ourselves in something that elicits an emotional reaction and think that I've worshipped. That won't do it. If the acts which God has revealed, the acts which He hath authorized are not done, then regardless of the emotional response, worship has not taken place. You may notice in Genesis 22.5, in the patriarchal era of time, recall the scene well. God had commanded Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go offer him as a burnt offering to me. One of the statements that Abraham made in the course of those events was this. He told his servants while they were in process of journey, you stay here while the lad and I go yonder to worship. Worship, you notice, was a set of acts that were going to take place at a certain place. What Abraham was then doing was not worship. Now, keeping that in mind, the New Testament also lists an amazing example in Acts 8.27. There was an Ethiopian nobleman who had traveled a far distance to go to Jerusalem to do something. Why couldn't he have done it in Ethiopia? He himself had made the observation. He was returning for to worship. Thus, he had completed the acts of worship, and he was returning homeward. May I say, then, that the second point, not only does worship involve acts, it's also true it's directed to God. Acts of reverence directed to God. These acts of reverence, then, they aren't for the purpose primarily of others. We aren't directing them to the governor of the state. We aren't directing them, you see, to any other grouping of people anywhere. They're directed to God. Doesn't that then make an obvious appreciation that it would be desirable for those acts then to be pleasing to the one to whom they're directed? On that slide, I've asked you to note this. The psalmist so powerfully observed in Psalm 89, 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. The assembly of the saints. And in that sense, you notice God's to be feared, meaning respected and reverenced and honored by the things that take place. Another passage you'll notice, was it at Jesus, who Himself in Matthew 14, asserted so beautifully and yet so profoundly that God and He alone is to be worshipped. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Oh, how the human family can err when one thinks that one's worship might be directed to another source, 
or even to some other matter. Acts of reverence directed to God. Point number three, we will give our consideration to this one. You noticed as a part of that identification that given that worship is directed to God, it also directly means this. It is not centered on man. What do you or I want in worship? In many ways, that's wholly irrelevant. In many ways, that's completely immaterial. Worship is not centered on me, and it isn't centered on you. We are not the ones being worshipped. Worship is directed to God. May I say that this is again another element in which there is a significant point of misunderstanding. Haven't you and I often noticed that some large congregations in various places will construct and configure their worship in such a way that it not only suits the preferences of the people there, but that seems to be its main design. Clearly, that's not the idea in worship. I've listed for you at the top certain comments that on occasion, I suppose, might even be made by you and me. I hope that this could at least be a reminder, something to prompt our thinking on points like this. Have you and I ever heard someone make the statement, maybe even we ourselves guilty of it, upon the departure from the, the building wherein the worship has occurred, well, I found that worship boring today. I'm sorry. If God approved those acts of reverence, and if they were done in such a way to honor and glorify Him, what difference does that make? That might say more than anything else about my mentality. Maybe my engagement wasn't as it ought to have been. But if God was pleased with that worship, who am I to render a verdict or opinion of boring? If God liked it, shouldn't that be enough? Or maybe you've heard statements like this, I didn't get anything out of it. May I suggest that likely indicates more than anything else the size of the bucket you brought. And that's true of all of us. Was I ready to be engaged with heartfelt consideration to the fact that I was worshiping the God of heaven? If not, that would explain why I didn't get a lot out of it. Was His Word magnified? Did I make prayer to Him? Did I partake of the Lord's Supper? If I wasn't prepared to participate and be mentally engaged in that, that would explain why I got so little out of it. And the problem is my heart, not the worship per se. You might also give thought then to worship as it's described in these ways. Challenges us evermore with the fact of the failings of what the world would so often perceive concerning worship. As you and I close that third point, there are several passages in the Old Testament and even some in the New that go along the following line. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. That thought is echoed in 1 Chronicles 16, 29. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. God deserves our best. May I say again, our best in worship. Some have observed that worship in many ways is the most intense and significant element in any of the works of the church. Because if our worship is as it ought to be, it says, speaks volumes about our heart and the kind of people we are and our connection to God. But if on the other hand, our worship is half-hearted 
and our worship is not engaged, it says again about our element of connection to, the, to, the, to in fact, the God of heaven. May I add to that the following thought based on the text that Brother Dennis read a minute ago. Jesus said, God's the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That word must forevermore reminds us how essential this is. Those who worship have to do it this way. Anything else will not be acceptable. Worship to the God of heaven. It involves spirit. That involves our participation, our mental engagement, our readiness to be a part of this, and our excitement in it. Are you and I enthused about the worship service of the Pippin Church of Christ today? I hope we are. Don't you know that's what God wants? Because He says we have to worship Him in spirit. Point number four. So far as we've thought about these matters in spirit, look at this one. Isn't it true that sometimes as we hear the human family make their descriptions of worship and their reflections and and matters of consideration on it, does not one get the impression that many consider worship some type of an entertainment time? I want my senses engaged by something external to what the Bible identifies as worship. Sometimes that happens by virtue of music, skits, plays, performances, or any number of other things. You've heard me say this before, but it's been etched on my mind because of the astounding character of it. Do you remember a few years ago when a congregation in Texas advertised their worship in such a way to attract crowds? And here's what they put on display. A couple of the elders were going to have a boxing match. What do you think about that? All, of course, to attract a crowd, to get some people there. I'd simply say worship is not a time of entertainment. It wasn't designed by God that way. A few, sli- a few matters at the bottom of that slide perhaps lead us to think of it like this. We live in a world that, quite frankly, is motivated so often by immediate gratification. I want my senses rather greatly lauded, and I I want them exercised. And so on cell phones, you get immediate reaction to something. Same's true on a computer. And so, for worship service, if I'm not basically emotionally excited every minute for 45 minutes, well then that's a kind of a boring service. Honey, won't we go somewhere else next Sunday? That just didn't do anything for me. We can easily see the problem. We need to appreciate that worship is not barely there for my entertainment. It's not like going to a movie theater. It's not like watching a ball game on television. That's not the basis of it. You'll notice then some statements that were made by a worship leader. There are congregations that have a worship leader, somebody designated to put together plans, configurations, to prompt worship. And here's what one gentleman said. Liturgy, that's just a fancy word for worship, should be imaginative and never boring. Another person put it like this, we must use vivid imagery. Easy to see in all of those descriptions. 
that this person is orchestrating the worship at that place in such a way to excite the senses of those who are present. May I say again, the Bible doesn't describe worship that way. Several verses to which I'd call your attention. James 4 verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If we organize worship just because the world would approve it, we are God's enemy. That's what James said. Furthermore, in Colossians 2.23, the inspired writer made reference to worship that's called will. W-I-L-L, worship. Will worship. What's that mean? It's worship because it's the will that I want. When I attend church services and I merely want those elders to configure this and the song leader to configure it in such a way that it meets my will, you can rest assured that's not a biblical and scriptural worship service because my will doesn't matter. The worship's not for my purposes. Now, in light of that, let's look at point number five. Not only are these things true, notice also this observation. Maybe you and I also have found that some try to organize worship expressly for the purpose of making the adherents feel good. Now, I may be quick to say, quite often, I'm sure you found it to be the same as I. Maybe after a difficult day, especially on Wednesday, you find the Bible study to be rejuvenating. You find it to be refreshing and encouraging, and you leave feeling far better than you did when you came. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about that circumstance in which the service is organized in such a way to make sure that nobody ever feels guilty about anything, to make sure that no one ever feels less than upbeat and positive about every single thing in, their, in that person's life. Have you noticed some worship services that you may observe seemingly are, are constructed that way. May I ask again, the worship of the Bible isn't described that way. If you and I need to feel guilty about something, we ought to expect a worship service that is as God would have it should make us feel that way. As a sinner entering the building, may I ask, what hope would there be of bringing that person to Christ and bringing that person to salvation if they leave feeling as though that everything's fine. If they leave feeling as if their life of sin is okay to God. A worship service that is as God would have it to be is a worship service that would remind me of my sinfulness and remind me of what the Lord did at Calvary for me. And the fact that my life ought to be one upon examination that I would wish to repent, to change, so that my worship could be acceptable to God. Because in my current state, it wouldn't be. Do we not read in Psalm 66, verses 18 and 19, that God doesn't hear sinners? Do we not read in those places that the worship of those are abomination to Him? Doesn't that remind us then of how important it is to appreciate point number five, God wants the contrite hearts of those that would wish to serve Him in faith, in obedience to His Word. And how delightful it is that we can assemble with those of like precious faith in that way 
to borrow the words of 2 Peter 1 verse 1. You'll notice that a couple of the verses I've asked you to consider there would be this one, 1 Peter 4.11. Peter admonished those of his day, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That then means that whatever the needful matter would be, you and I have often noted, Paul said, I shun not to declare the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verse 27. Paul kept back nothing. And he did that for the blessedness and the benefit of those that heard those lessons and preaching. Today, the words of our songs, the words of the Bible, encourage and exhort and prompt us. What about point number six? The purpose of worship is not social convenience. Again, there's a bit of misunderstanding about that in our world, isn't there? Some who think that the assembly of the church is a time for, co- for coffee and donuts and talk about last night's ball game and maybe talk about the weather this week and then we'll go home and we'll think about the greatness of our worship. Worship is not merely about that kind of thing. Before worship services, we might enjoy discussing with someone about this coming week's weather and the kind of warnings involved. But that kind of discussion stops once the worship starts. And after the worship is over, we might enjoy conversation with someone on the way to the car or otherwise about ball games. But that's not for the purpose of the worship. We don't do that during our prayer, and we don't do that during the Lord's Supper. And during our singing, we ought not be thinking about what's for lunch. You see, it's not about social convenience. Some of our brethren who worship in distant countries, when you listen to Ron Gilbert and others talk about what they do in worship, they participate in the same acts we do, but they don't have the social conveniences we do. They don't have air-conditioned buildings for the most part. And they sit on a log for four or five hours for worship. That'd be a bit uncomfortable to you and me, but doesn't it remind us how blessed we are? Padded pews in an air-conditioned building, and sometimes we still fuss because we have to be there an hour. Says a little bit about us, doesn't it? At the very least, might we remember that in Psalm 84, verse 10, the psalmist in the long ago could say, I'm happy to be a doorkeeper in the service to God. You see the kind of attitude of thankfulness and gratitude and appreciation brings us to point number seven. As you look at it with me, one more time, maybe I need to begin with a little bit of a statement of description. It would be our desire, and God's too, that the church building would be overflowing that there'd be so many people, they'd be standing outside because there's not enough seats in here. And we would love for that to be a reality. But may I say, we probably could reorganize our worship to make that happen. We could probably put a band over here in the corner. We could probably offer some kind of a movie exercise and maybe a skit or two. And we could probably never take up a collection. And we probably could soon get a lot of people attending. But you know, there's an issue with that. Those acts of reverence directed to God that we mentioned earlier, we need to ensure that the acts that are a part of our worship are those that God has approved. We don't find approval for the kind of things I just mentioned. In fact, one of the things you and I probably noted 
is that sports events have typically encroached quite often upon Sunday. And those that start on Eastern time typically start at about 11 o'clock Central time. So I submit that we probably could put a band over in the corner and we could probably put a large 72-inch TV or bigger in the corner and we could watch a ball game. And every time there's a commercial, we could sing some spiritual song and probably, if we would at least serve a few drinks along the way, we'd have a house full of people. And we could call that worship, or so you would think, and everybody would be happy. If our goal was to have large crowds, we, we could make it happen. But you know, in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah said, How long am I supposed to preach like this, God? God didn't say, You're going to have big crowds. He told Isaiah, There's only going to be a few who are going to have the mentality and interest in doing things the way that God has identified it, and you preach it that way always. Don't ever compromise it. You and I love the Word of God, and we will never compromise it either. We encourage and we plead with individuals to appreciate it, but sadly, many will choose not to. Point number eight, worship must be in truth. In many ways, we highlighted this throughout some of our discussion, but let's at least conclude our lesson like this. You might recall that earlier we laid a bit of emphasis on John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We noted the emphasis of the word spirit, but Jesus also said that truth is a requirement. What does it mean to worship God in truth? In John 17, 17, the Bible is God's truth. That means you and I have the blessed appreciation that God has revealed in His Word what acts He wants included in that worship. And any acts, any act which He hasn't authorized would thus not be permitted. I wonder what those acts are. You and I might again appreciate many things. Some might have a boxing match. Is that an acceptable act of worship? Others, perhaps talented in that way, could turn cartwheels down the center aisle. Would that be acceptable? Others might could parade around the building in such a way, much like what they did in Joshua 6. Would that be acceptable? What you and I have to do is to rightly divide the Word of God and let it dictate what's acceptable. We find that singing is acceptable because in Acts chapter 20, they sang... And you and I remember that they did at the church at Colossae, the church at Ephesus, as well as others in the New Testament. They sang, and you and I have joyously done that too. As we do that, we strive, of course, to sing with spirit and with understanding. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. We strive to sing as we teach and admonish each other. Colossians 3, verse, verse number 16. Prayer is acceptable. The lovely appreciation of turning our thoughts to God in prayer and laying our concerns upon Him. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. And Paul expressly said in 1 Timothy 2 about those brethren when they assembled that they prayed. Thirdly, the observance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus taught as He instituted that Lord's Supper 
He taught, did he not, that this memorial was to be a lasting one of him, involving the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And we even read decades later, as Paul addressed the church at Corinth, they, using the same elements, recognize the ongoing memorial involved in that. Today, we still do it. The contribution. We understand that we have been commanded in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, to give as we've been prospered. And Paul identified that when they came together is when that collection was taken. We do the same thing today. No change. Fifthly, the emphasis upon the Word of God. You and I might refer to that as a preaching consideration. And so we have the Word of God opened. And a gentleman presents to us what that Word of God teaches. It's not the words of the gentleman. It's the words of God. And each of us stand four square before the nature of that Word. Because Jesus said in John 12, verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him at the last day. Those are the only authorized acts of worship which the New Testament has revealed to us. And so anything else would thus not be permitted Today, as you and I have thought about the worship of the church, what a special exercise and what a meaningful moment it is. We look forward to it. We'll have another opportunity tonight at 5.30. How exciting it is every time the church assembles to appreciate directing our attention to Him in the way that He would have us to do it. At this very time, as we close this lesson today, I hope that our statement about the nature of worship has been a good reminder for each of us, an encouragement to us, and helping us realize how special these times really are. It might be that someone in this assembly has perhaps reached a time of life when you have never obeyed the gospel, but you know that you need to. You know that the Lord died for you, and you know that you have sin. If you know those two things, then at this point you're lost. And you need to make that right by allowing the Lord's blood to rush over you like an overwhelming flood and cleanse your sins. Today, if we could be of assistance in that way, you need to express that by way of belief, repentance, confession, baptism. If you have become a Christian, but as of today you're not faithful, then you need to also make that right. As we learn in the Bible study hour this morning, we're as water spilt on the ground. We pass through this life once, and there's no way to reclaim the moments that we've lost. If you need to respond in that way today, don't delay another moment. Death could come, the death of your loved ones could come, and you'll never be able to enjoy the sweet fellowship with them. Today, the Lord beckons and pleads with anyone in that situation to come. Won't you repent of those sins, make confession of them? The Lord would lovely, lovingly welcome you back to that place of faithfulness. Today, this song of encouragement has been selected. If we could be of help at this time, why don't you come while we stand and sing?